Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hello, so I want to put a disclaimer on the beginning of this video. As you can tell from the title, it is a video that deals with suicide from a benzodiazepine injury. It's an extremely powerful interview with, uh, with a woman named Kelsey who lost her husband to suicide from a benzo injury and uh, she goes into a lot of details about what it was like keeping him alive for the five years and you know she goes into details around how he died and his suicide note it is clearly filled with content that could be very triggering for some so if you feel like you're not in a state of mind where something like this um could be listened to um i would i would give this one a miss for now uh also at the end of the video i talk about um options for what you should do if you are feeling suicidal while you're going through one of these injuries. And so if you do watch the video, please uh, go to the end at least and um, have, have a listen to that if you're feeling suicidal. So with all that said, um, please enjoy what I think is a really moving and powerful interview. Thanks. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It's my pleasure to be joined by Kelsey Krauss today, who has very kindly and courageously agreed to tell her family's story. Um, her husband suffered from a protracted withdrawal injury from benzodiazepines and ultimately ended up taking his life. And so Kelsey's here today to share her story in the hope that it may help others who go through, uh, who have to deal with uh, either protracted uh, benzodiazepine injury themselves or a, a family member who has this. So Kelsey, I'm delighted to have you here and, and thanks for coming on. Please, please go ahead and and uh, t tell us what happened to your husband. Yeah, I'm. First of all, thank you for the opportunity, um, and thank you for what you're doing, shining a light because there there needs to be more awareness around all of this. Um, it sure would have helped us on our journey. So, my husband Max died April 14th, 2020, and it it ended in suicide. About five years of intense suffering and struggling. Um, so that would have been in about 2015. I remember our daughter was one years old and um, he just started having these strange physical symptoms. And by this point, he had occasionally been taking Xanax for anxiety um, since he was 18. So it'd been about 10, 12 years of him taking this medication prescribed by the same doctor the entire time. Um, so he would take the medicine as needed. And, you know, like he was going to be speaking at a wedding or standing up in a wedding, anything that would make him a little anxious. And then he realized that if he took about a quarter of the pill, um, it would really help him sleep at night. So he called his doctor asked if he could take it um, to help him sleep. And she, without hesitation, said, absolutely. So for over a decade, um, and not every day by any means, but he, he was on this medication regularly for about a decade. And in 2015, he started having, um, it started with like crazy stomach pain and he didn't know where it was coming from. He had all of the tests run, he would, you know, get the the scope down the throat to see what was going on. Literally every test you can imagine and everything was coming back normal. And Kelsey, so, may I ask from your recollection, how did he describe it? Was this like a kind of 
a bloating or a full feeling, or was it kind of like a tearing, like almost a physical pain around the diaphragm? What, what, what was it? How did he describe that? Yeah, the tearing is a good, a good way to describe it. Just, just a lot of pressure and discomfort. Um, mm-hmm. And he just said it, it was a lot of pain. So mm-hmm. a lot of pain in the diaphragm area. So we didn't know what was going on, right? And you, you know, we're thinking: is there ulcers, or does he have an allergy to gluten? Is is this a celiac thing? So we went through the gauntlet of testing, and the more tests that came back negative, or that everything was okay, as you can imagine, his anxiety began to increase because he just knew he didn't feel well, and all of these doctors were pretty much saying, "We don't know what to tell you. Like, there's there's nothing we can do for you." So his anxiety began to spike and he then found a psychiatrist here in Denver um, doing a lot of research. And Max was someone who was always looking for the best of the best. He wanted to make sure that he was talking to the right person. So he found a psychiatrist who put him um, on Klonopin. So he took him off of the Xanax and put him on Klonopin, which from my understanding, and you could affirm um, this mm-hmm. is that like a heavier hitter benzodiazepine? Is it stronger? I would I would say they're about this. You know that it all depends on dose. So they would be the same. The main difference with clonopin is it it's longer it's longer acting than Xanax. So it would have given him more steady coverage um, okay. than Xanax, which can kind of be up and down, up and down in your plasma serum. Clonopin is more of this kind of gradual kind of up and down, and that may have provided that that may have been a justification for swapping it okay yeah either way when he got on the klonopin it immediately yeah. made him feel worse okay. and i just remember him telling me like i do not like this i don't feel right um and then that's when some really interesting head pain began to set into motion he would explain it as he said it felt like his brain was attached to a car battery and that he would just get these jolts into his brain, these zaps that hurt so bad. And he knew that a lot of these other symptoms, like the increased stomach pain, the, the head, the head tension all set into motion on after the, the Klonopin. And so he, he began to start to have a feeling that, what he was experiencing could have been from the medication. So he told the psychiatrist, I want to come off of these meds. And this was in 2017. So we had already gone about 18 months of testing and trying to figure it out and um, getting to the bottom of it. We tested our house for mold. We left our house and moved to multiple other places as our house was renovated and um, all of these things. And so it, by December of 2017, he wanted to come off of the medication. And so this psychiatrist weaned him off um, over the course of four weeks, which mm. after the fact, I, I have learned now that the amount that Max was taking and for how long he was taking it, his weaning off process of the benzos should have been at least two years. And so his body just went into absolute shock after that. So that takes us into 2018 and it just, nothing was calming down. I would say that his, his anxiety was probably the dominant symptom at that point. Um, 
to which we assumed it would be, right? Because he was coming off of this medication that he'd been on for a really long time. And it was, again, the, st the stomach pain never went away. The head zaps increased. He began to have insomnia and wasn't sleeping well. Um, all, all of these things. And, and it was just, he wasn't himself anymore. He was consumed with the way that he felt. And for me, I, I was just doing what I could to keep the peace and the calm within our household. And he was the one researching literally everything, trying to get to the bottom of what he was experiencing. So 2018, um, he was kind of spinning out of control and I just encouraged him to take a solo trip and go somewhere to calm his mind and try to just relax a little bit. And he traveled for 10 days down to Baja, Mexico. And um, that kind of helped. And I thought, you know, maybe we just need to pause life and get out of here for a minute and get him away from work and just allow his body time and space to heal. Because we still at this point didn't have a clue what was going on. And so, so he thought, he goes, maybe it has something to do with the medication, but he was off it. And then he was just... And, but you still didn't really know it was a protracted injury from the yep. benzos. Okay. Yep. Okay. yep. And throughout that time, too, he was still seeking um, medical advice. But again, nothing was coming back as showing anything. And so, yeah. and I sat in more appointments than I could count with, with Western medicine doctors, all of which kind of made him feel like he was crazy, right? And a lot of their responses when he's when he would explain that he had um, come off of this medication, they said, well, it's out of your system in two weeks. So it doesn't have anything to do with that. And he but all he could say is like, I don't feel good. But nobody really was believing him. They just thought that it was all a mental issue at this point. You know, and, and when you talk about the anxiety, um Anxiety is, in, for some of the folks who have this injury, I mean, the word doesn't do it justice. I mean, it's it's kind of this all-consuming kind of obsessive negative rumination where you just kind of constantly, you know, uh, in in the darkest place, you know, I'm, you know, I'm never going to get better. You know, my life is over. It's just like the heaviness of the anxiety and depression, which is associated with these symptoms. It's it's out of this world. It's 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 one of the worst things I've ever seen before. Yeah. It's so awful. I could I yeah, I could imagine how difficult it would have been for you and and the way it is for all caretakers for people who are going through this I mean they it's 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 so hard to reassure and comfort someone when they're in that mental state constantly. Right. Yeah. Right, it's awful. I mean, and truly my my spirituality and both of our relationship with God was was truly that what we tethered ourselves to because we didn't know where else to go. And for me, it was like the, everything was spinning out of control. But if I could at least maintain my own inner peace, I would be able to be that peaceful presence and that light for him and, mm -hmm. and to pray when he needed it. And at least me not get lost in the, um, the rabbit hole of fear, right? Because yes. I was just seeing that fear was driving him into this place of, like you said, it's like the end of the world and you can't see the light. But mm -hmm. I thought if I can just be the light, I'm right in front of him and I can at least try to anchor us into a, a posture of hope. God, God bless you. Yeah, that, that's exactly what people need when they're going through that. It's a calming person. I mean, it's 
it's it's one of the most useful things when you're spinning out of control. That that's just amazing to hear. Yeah. Oh, I feel just honored that. Yeah. I feel honored that like God chose me to be that person for him because mm -hmm. I know that it, a lot of people wouldn't have been able to handle that or a lot of yeah. people would have left. Right. Because it was yeah. just chaotic. But for I, me, I, I, I hear from people a lot, of, a lot of the times, you know, and, and this is really difficult, but you know, the, you know, the spouse will leave with the children because it's too difficult to, to deal with just the, the chaos going on and, you know, to be able to stay there, and be there for your person. I mean, it's no small thing, I guess, is what I want to say. I mean, it's really, really challenging. Um, yeah. There was um, something bigger in the equation for us, for sure. Mm -hmm. There was this supernatural strength that was present. And for that, mm -hmm. I I have to shine a light on that reality. Um, because me, like by myself, I don't know if I could have done it. But me, yeah. with the lens of heaven, yeah. uh, made it possible. So... <laughs> So, so please go on, keep, keep on going with the story. Yeah. So by, so Max went on a trip in March of 2018, mm -hmm. um, down to Mexico and he loved it. I joined him for the last four weeks. And I also really loved this place that we, we had discovered. So we went from March and then it wasn't until December of 2018. Again, he's just powering through the days. He's still working. He's still showing up to life. He's still smiling, you know, and, and trying to be hopeful um, for me and for our daughter, who was like one and a half by this point and just the light of his life. So in 2018, we decided to go back down to, um, to Baja for a whole month and just get away. And Max was trying to surf and trying to get into some holistic remedies to try to just um, increase the peace and try to calm his mind down, which was so full of fear and worry. And so he was diving into meditations. He was surfing. Um, we were in nature. It was a slower paced life. He wasn't working anymore. And so what I saw kind of happening was like, okay, this, this might be the, um, the ingredients needed, right. To provide him the space for healing. So after that month in Mexico, which I need to point out too, he had a a head injury at that time he was whacked with his surfboard and had a concussion and his mm -hmm. friend took him to the emergency room in the in the local town that we were at and because he was out of his mind he i mean he didn't know where he was he didn't know what date it was and to calm him down they gave him a valium which mm -hmm. is another benzodiazepine but at this point he hadn't had one in nearly a year and so from my understanding, when you are off it and you enter it back into your system, that also can be a dangerous recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. for, for some people, some I've definitely heard that before, that it can be a trigger. It can trigger a wave, you know, a flare up of the symptoms. But I've also had some people who have had to, you know, who've had protracted withdrawal injuries and they go in for a surgery and then they need to get some kind of sedation and they tolerate it. Okay. But it's hit and miss. I've definitely heard that story before that some people, when it gets reintroduced, things flare up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it was like the perfect storm, right? So it yeah. flared up for him. 
And that was, um, you know, probably three or four days before we were heading home after our month out there. And so I immediately saw this, this kind of peace and this joy that was being restored just taken right away. And he was in another downward spiral. So he was in another wave. Um, and not to and mention, it, he probably had less of a reserve to deal with the the recovery from the concussion as well. You know, so you've got the re-triggering by the Valium, and then he's also having to kind of recover from this concussion with a brain that's already injured. You know, it's already kind of very sensitive and, and everything like that. It would have, it would have been a bad, he would have been in a bad place. Yeah. yeah. And it was, yeah. and I just yeah. remember being like, crap, like what? And then him too, because he was so educated in what he was going through. Um, he knew that it wasn't good, you know? So then you have the physical realities, but then you, you add in the mental turmoil and it's just, it just compounded into a hellstorm, really. And everything was really spiraling. Um, again, by the time we returned. And so me and him both knew and said to each other, we've got to just get back down to Mexico. We've got to just get down there, get you back into this atmosphere of healing um, where you can just breathe and get in the ocean every day and not have to worry about putting on a, a face for all of our community because um, he had a lot of friends. And I think even showing up in front of them and having to pretend that he was okay was exhausting. And so being in a place where people didn't know him and he could really just be himself and be vulnerable about what he was going through also just felt good and felt safe. So we ended up renting out our house and buying an RV and we drove back down to Mexico in um, March of 2019. And all of this was driven by like, we need to, you need to be healed. And we didn't understand just yet the intensity of the damage that we were dealing with or that there there was an injury going on. We just thought that maybe this was did have something to do with the benzos, but weren't really sure. Um, and we were just following our hearts and and being guided by the spirit. And we needed mm -hmm. to go back to Mexico. So that's what we did. And I know that that whole time down there, um, God, it was so... He never felt great, you know, he never felt good, but there was a bit of joy that was being restored. And our daughter was four years old by this point. And there were memories made in those almost six months that we were down there that I think was just a gift from heaven for her and for me to just have, have this time together to just be the three of us and away from everything. And we always knew that we would be coming home um, that summer of 2019. We had weddings to go to. We just, we had things to do. And so we made the trip back up. And, and here's another thing. And it's like, is it a part of it or is it a coincidence or is it all just a perfect storm? Max had a parasite when we were down in Mexico. And so he went to the doctor and they gave him a um, antibiotic called Flagyl. Mm -hmm. And he took that and like, I think it was a two week or maybe 10 days that he was prescribed to take this. And after two days, he looked at me and he's like, I do not feel right. And I think his system was just super sensitive. Like the, his, uh, the 
biome or whatever in his microbiome yep yeah Yeah, i think that that was sensitive his everything going on in his brain was sensitive but he immediately didn't feel well and called one of his friends and said look i'm taking this who was a doctor um i it's making me feel like crap should i keep taking it to which this friend said yeah this one can be kind of intense but keep taking it so it kills off the the parasite and he he didn't feel good about it but he kept taking it and it was from that moment um in the summer of 2019 that we hit a depth of suffering that we hadn't seen yet um and then max came across something called flagell toxicity have you heard of that well i was just going to say i'm 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 looking at I'm I'm looking at the FDA label right now and right here in the warnings and precautions for it, you know, this section here, I mean, this, this must've been what it is, you know, encephalopathy mm-hmm. that, that means like a brain, brain injury, peripheral yeah. neuropathy. And so, so we've got, you know, your husband already has this brain injury and then he takes a medication that mm-hmm. can cause it as well. He's likely much more sensitive to it. And so we have kind of an, these injuries getting stacked on top of one another. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like like I keep saying it was, I don't want to call it a perfect storm. It was actually a crap storm um, of just things that kept compiling on top of each other. And he came across the flagell toxicity pretty quickly and began educating himself on that because what happened after that was just, Oh my gosh. I, I, began to not really recognize him anymore and the turmoil that he was in it was horrific so it's we still are dealing with the stomach stuff we still are dealing with the head zaps um and then we start dealing with really bad insomnia such crazy anxiety that we had to actually go live with his parents um for about six months just so that i could have a helping hand because he really couldn't be by himself or alone for any prolonged period, he needed someone there to continually talk him off the the ledge. Um, He started having body convulsions where he would just like jolt, like, you know, and and he couldn't Mm -hmm. control it. And I remember there was a time, um, God, this, it was, it was so wild after that. We tried getting him into, a couple different um, mental health facilities. One of them was oh, a whole God. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. the first one was holistic because he was okay. like, I'm not taking, I'm not doing medication anymore. What was the name of it? Oh, it was in Sedona. And Alternative to med center. Yeah. It wasn't that one. We tried okay. getting them in that one later on, mm-hmm. but they didn't allow him to come because of how intense his suicidal ideation okay that point it was the sanctuary okay it was called the sanctuary and i mean just reading about it felt so promising right i'm like yes they do meditations they do sound healing they do all of you know cleansing they do only um vegan diet so all of these things were like yes 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 Mm -hmm. so we drove him out there and after three days he called me and he said you have to come pick me up they they are not capable of taking care of me here. And at that point, his in- insomnia was so bad that he couldn't sleep. And so he was constantly going to the medical staff. And they pretty much just said, until you get the mental side of all of this under control, we what the medicine that we have 
isn't, we can't help you here. Like you're kind of beyond our reach at this point. You need. They didn't understand what he was going through. You know, they They didn't understand. Yeah. So we, I flew out there, I picked him up. um, And he, he was, he wasn't sleeping. He could barely go out in public. Um, We came home, went back to the drawing board. So by this time it was me, my in-laws, his best friends, all trying to find a medical answer to the problem somewhere where he could go that could give him help. But he was so afraid of going anywhere that wanted to prescribe him any more medication because he knew what that had done to begin with. But we were desperate and I was tired. I didn't, I couldn't do anything anymore. And I, I needed um, a break, I guess you could say his parents were desperate. And of course, absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, it was becoming, it was becoming very, 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 very hard. So we found another mental health facility out in California. Um, This one was included medication. Um, but we didn't know what else to do. And so he went to it. He called me from it right away. Just said, they just want to put me on more meds. I don't want more meds. He, I, he ended up taking something because by this point too, it, he had like his whole body was tingling and felt like there was like pins and needles on it. And so they gave him something. I don't remember the name of it to a gabapentin or Lyrica or something like that. Gabapentin. That was it. Yeah. 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 And to try to take the tingling away. But that, again, just increased his physical symptoms. And the agreement was when he went out to this mental health facility, I was going to take our daughter and go out to Baja where we had lived for those six months and visit some friends so I could just regroup and fill my cup and try to um, get realigned so that I could be there again for him in the way that he needed. But that time out there, I mean, my phone was blowing up with him. He was calling me around the clock, like two in the morning, like four in the morning, just scared and couldn't sleep and didn't want to be there anymore. And by that point, too, he told me that he had banged his head against a shower wall, a glass shower door, um, because he just wanted the pain to stop. And when he did that, it terrified him. And so... He just, he kept telling me, I know it's, I know it's the benzos. And he, he would say, you don't understand how sick I am. And at this point I didn't because I wasn't in all of the researching like he was. I didn't allow myself to go down that trail of fear. Like I said, I stayed so rooted in my faith because I needed to be present for him in that way. And I didn't want fear to get a hold of my mind too. Mm-hmm. So I remember hanging up the phone with him one time and for the first time Googling benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome, which is what he began to realize he was dealing with. What year was this when, when you think he started to realize he had protracted withdrawal and had put it together? It was the fall of 2019. That's four years after he he had been mm -hmm. injured. Okay. Four years, four years, four years of suffering without mm-hmm. any idea of what was going on, You're spending yeah. all of this money, going to a million doctors, getting a million tests. Um, oh, tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. clinics, you know, it's like you, you go and, and every, nobody, I, zero doctors had a clue, like mm-hmm. emergency room doctors, clinical doctors, 
Western medicine, these these uh, mental health facilities, nobody had presented the term benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome to us. Max came across that himself on a website called benzobuddies.com, I think, yeah. which essentially is a group of people who I don't even know if doctors are allowed on that website, but it's a bunch of people who are dealing with this and it's really just a support group um, so that they alone don't feel like they're going crazy. Yep. But this, the symptoms were all the same. So you have hundreds of people sharing their experience and it's all the same. So I started Googling benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome and reading testimonies and watching videos online. And I just remember sitting in my little casita in Mexico and my heart just. You go, this is it, you know? Yeah. I was like, this is it. Yeah. And I, and just reading the, um, I remember reading in particular one woman's story and it was through the, the, it, her husband, because she was the one that went through it. And she was from Fort Collins, which is a neighboring city to where we were. And um, she was so in love with God and had so much faith. And I could relate to that because I had so much faith that we were, that he was going to be healed, that we were going to get through this. And I remember reading her testimony and her writing a letter to her husband, to their church, and just saying, don't blame God for this. Like, for whatever reason, God chose not to heal me, but it's not God's fault. And mm -hmm. she ended up shooting herself in her car. And I just remember calling my mom and I was like, oh my God. And she, my mom at this time too, had began researching it because I shared with her the term. And so we both were reading about it for the first time. And I called her and I just said, mom, I don't think Max is going to make it out of this. And she just said, you know, sweetheart, I don't think he is either. And I just was like, Fuck, what do I do? And at that point, I just, I knew that where he was, that facility that was trying to just give him more meds, I knew that wasn't the answer. And I knew that I had to get him out of there and he wanted out of there. So I think it was about a week into our, our trip. I, um, me and Marley, my daughter flew from Mexico to California to pick him up. And, um, my mother-in-law, Max's mom flew to California to meet us so that she could take Marley home and me and Max could drive home together because he, he was too anxious to get on a flight. So we drove home together and, that was after he, they had given him a couple other tried, they, they were just trying medications because they didn't know what mm -hmm. else to do. And he hit a place of just trying them because he didn't know what else to do either. And we were driving home and he got into the back seat of the car and told me to put the child lock on because he was, he was wanting to throw himself out of the car. And was was he on additional medications when he left? No, he he was not on okay. anything when he left. He just pretty much said, I don't want, I don't want any of it. This is not the answer. This is what got me into the whole mess. And I I believed that as well. I I I knew that what he had been saying was true. I knew that he was sicker than we realized. And I knew that benzo withdrawal syndrome was what he was going through. And my gut also told me more medication is not the answer to this. Like that is not the, the way. Um, and so that was like the first time when I 
realized that he he was struggling with the um, the will to live at this point, really struggling with it. So our drive home was was pretty intense. Um, and then we ended up having to pull off in Vail because there was a snowstorm and checked into a hotel and he just began having an anxiety attack and kept telling me to call 911. But I was like, babe, they're not going to do anything for you. They're not going to know. You're just, you need to breathe. You need to calm down. And it was the first time that I was kind of feeling afraid too, seeing his mental state and his panic. Um, eventually. Because he's got- like the level of desperation is so high, you know, because he knows, you know, well, he knows that the, the emergency room isn't going to help. You know, he knows the psychiatric hospital is not going to help. But he's just in so much, such a tailspin of despair, and 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 pain. You know, he's he's just like call nine one one because what else do you do? Um, what else? Yeah, it's and, like you just want to believe that there's someone out there that might be able to take this this pain yeah. from you. And the the sad reality is that there's not. Like you are on this journey, and you have to you have to ride these waves. And Max, by the time he passed away, he was in a wave that lasted about nine months every single day of just absolute intensity. And we ended up um, moving in with my sister and her family at this time because our home was still being rented because we rented it for a whole year with the intention of traveling in the RV. Um, But everything spun out of control. And that's when we lived with his folks for six months. And then Max went to the facility in California and his parents just said, we can't, we can't do this anymore. Like we, that was so much for them. And I had to respect that. And I understood. And I'm just like, I hear you. And my sister said, come here. We have an extra room for you. Like her husband is a paramedic firefighter. He had dealt with seeing people in highly anxious states and calming people down. And they just said, this is, we've got you, like, come. And they had two little kids as well. So Marley had her cousins. So we moved into um, their room. All three of us shared a room together. And um, this was by far the worst five months of the whole thing. It's like, you keep thinking this can't get any worse, right? But it just kept getting worse. And he would tell me that he felt like his whole body was on fire, And he had at that point also gained the symptom of restless leg syndrome. So he couldn't sit still. He was always up just circling in the kitchen, walking up and down all around the house. And with that, the convulsions, right. And the, and the like outbursts and, you know, and he was so embarrassed because it's like, he, like my niece and nephew would just like, look at him like, what, you know, it was kind of scary to witness. Mm -hmm. Like, I yeah. hate this. Yeah, how do you explain that to a kid? You know, something so complicated, you know, that, you know, what, you know, what the, the terror on his face, the fact that he paces around, you know, around the house nonstop. I mean, it's, it, it's really, yeah, I, I could, I can definitely see how distressing that would be to be there. And, and I mean, it's so hard. I mean, you didn't have any options. You know, you, you had to go somewhere where you could get some help, you know, right. but but sometimes being around people as well, it's like a double, double-edged sword because you get the comfort and you get the support, but then also, you know, when you're in this 
the the chaos of it like sometimes you need to be alone and and so it's to to pay some yeah i cannot imagine how how difficult that was it was it was so intense and i will never be able to repay my sister and her family for what they did because the truth is is i don't know if anyone would have been strong enough and compassionate enough and selfless enough to step into our story at that chapter of it, like they did. And so my sister is just, she's so positive and so giving that she was just always taking the kids to do stuff and always just having a fun environment. And my brother-in-law took like six weeks off of work just to stay at the house with Max and to just be there as that, that extra support and that to be able to like, for me to be able to tag him in um, if I didn't have anything left in me. And if Max needed someone to talk him off the ledge, like for Matt to be there was such a gift and for Marley to have her cousin. So she was distracted, right. Which is play and fun. And Mm -hmm. um you know, and, and this was in also right when COVID started. So we were all in this space together, like yeah. as close as you could be. And um, he, I remember he didn't sleep for like a whole week and he, he would come and, and wake me up in the middle of the night and just be like, I don't feel good. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't feel good. And I'm like, well, what do you want me? I don't know what to do either. And he would just throw his body on the floor and just start shaking. And he's like, I'm burning. Everything is burning. And I'm like, well, let's put you in a cool shower. But the the shower on his skin hurt too. That's, and yeah. that was painful. And I just was like, what? I just didn't. It's like being in the storm and being outside of it at the same time, right? Like I was like, what is going on? And I just didn't know that suffering could be so inhumane like that, like so um, nonstop chronic, like around the clock, it was constant. And he would constantly be calling me into the bedroom to pray with him. And so I would honestly say 10 times every day we were on our knees in prayer. Like, and Mm -hmm. I think that that was just to combat the mental side of what he was going through because he would, tell me too that his thoughts were not his own anymore and that they were scaring him, but he knew that they weren't his thoughts. And I'm like, well, what are you thinking? And he, he would just say, I can't tell you, I would scare you. And then I'm thinking, well, I would ask him, well, am I, are we safe? And he, he would cry and he would just say, I would never hurt you. Mm-hmm. And I just was in a space of not knowing at all what to do anymore. And by this time, we had been on a wait list to get into another holistic facility in Fort Collins, an outpatient facility. And so we had gone to our first interview with them and, you know, they just are talking to Max and asking him to describe everything that he's going through and uh, which he did. And afterwards I had the psychiatrist call me and she just said, look, I'm really concerned about your husband. Um, I'm really concerned that he's, that he's going to end his life. And I'm like, well, what does one do in this situation? Right. Because I still, even though it had become a stark reality for me, I still was clinging to hope that there was going to be a miraculous healing. Like that's, that's the only way I knew how to believe. Mm -hmm. And, but I kept hearing everyone else's concern. 
And so they're like, we're going to try to treat him and we're going to try to do these other things. And ketamine was one of the options and one of the treatments that they wanted to do with him. So his, his dad, um, my father-in-law took Max to his first treatment of ketamine there. And I guess it was horrible. And Max said that he, he pretty much said that he saw demons and that he was like shaking and screaming and, and it even traumatized this psychiatrist. She told me that she had nightmares about his experience for weeks and didn't know what to do. And it got to the point then where she said, Max, the only other option is to put you back on benzos. And he Obviously, neither of us wanted that, but she said it could help calm down some of these physical symptoms to where you could at least maybe get some sleep or maybe enjoy some quality time with your family. And he asked her, and I remember in that moment, like he just said, but what if they don't work? And I think if they didn't work, that was for him the sign that nothing was going to work and Mm -hmm. that he knew it was kind of he was afraid to go there. Because if it didn't work, his hope would be completely gone at that point. And he agreed to get back on them. So I think they put him back on Klonopin. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Klonopin and not Xanax. And it did help with some of the physical stuff. Like it did help with the the fire all over his body. Burning, yep. Mm-hmm. It did help with his the brain zaps. And he was able to calm down enough to get a few hours of sleep every night. Um, but it didn't take the dark thoughts away. Those were those were mm-hmm. very much present. And this was all probably around mid-March. Um, and we were also talking with a, a psychiatrist, Dr. Jennifer Lee, out of Northern California, who also mm-hmm. went through Benzo. You've heard of her? Yeah, yeah, no, I know her. I interviewed her for my channel a, a few months back. She's uh, yeah, she, one of the one of the best coaches out there. She's very good. She yeah. pretty much started coaching both of us, and yeah. I listened to her advice, and I started cooking vegan for our family. Um, I anything that she would give Max to do, I would really be the one to encourage him. So she was such a a light in our in our storm at that point. But what I realize now that I didn't know then is that the damage done within Max was, it was already done and his Mm -hmm. body was having it. I, even if he came out of that wave, you don't know how long the window of relief is going to be. And you don't know when the next wave is going to come on and how long it's going to last. And I think that that was Max's struggle was even if this goes away, it's going to come back. And how long is it going to last and how intense is it going to be? And so it was pretty much by that point, a a really hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, he was just fighting every single day, pretty much fighting to make it through every single day. So he could enjoy about 15 minutes laying in bed with me and our daughter playing a game on his phone at night, just enough to like connect with her and hold her. Like, I know that that is what he lived for, for like months. 
And maybe even to just give her those last memories of connection because he had taken probably 30 selfies with him and her and his phone in that time. But I think that he had made up his mind and knew how his story was going to end. So it just got to the point um, where we were about to move home together. Our our friends were moving out of our house. Their one-year lease was up, and it was time to go home. And for me, I was ready to be at home. I was ready to be in our own space. Um, and I had had him lined up with a bunch of inpatient um, or outpatient clinics in Denver. I had friends that were volunteering to come over and like do yoga with him in the backyard or get him out in nature to do fishing. It was like we had the whole team lined up to continue to support his journey. And he just, he couldn't fathom the thought of being alone with me and Marley. He was terrified of that. And he just would tell me, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to go home. But for me, it had been four years of like being pulled in every direction to whatever he needed. And mm-hmm. I was, I needed to stand my ground with what I needed at that point. And I said, we, we're going home. Like it's time to go home, to get rooted, to be in a, our own space. And it's going to be okay. And so it was the morning of April 14th and I had packed up all of our stuff. Everything was in suitcases ready to to go home that next day. And um, Max left that morning to go get a new car battery put in our car. And he left and called me and and just said, you know, they're they're working on it. It's just going to be a few more minutes. And then he called back. 15 minutes later and said, they're checking something else on the car. And I'm like, okay. He's like, I'll be home in a few minutes. And 20 minutes went by. And I mean, this place was a block away and I called him and, and he didn't answer his phone. And then I called him again and he didn't answer his phone. And I just knew, I knew that that, uh, I knew that he was gone because prior to that there'd been a few other times where he would just like take the car and disappear and but he would always answer his phone and he's like I don't think I can come back I think I need to just figure this out on my own I need to see if I'm either going to make it or I'm not and he would always we would always convince him to come back home and then it got to the point where I stopped letting him take the car because I was like you're freaking me out like I can't not Mm -hmm. know where you are and but I just thought, yeah, you can go put a battery in the car. It's a block away. And I just trusted him. And um, so that morning when when he didn't answer, I just knew because every other time he at least would answer. And uh, I remember looking out the window and I was on the phone with one of my best friends because I was scared and I just needed her to pray. And I saw an ambulance because there was a firehouse like maybe a block and a half away but you could see it you know on the corner there and I saw an ambulance come out and it's like I just heard in my heart I just knew it was his so that was about 8 eight thirty in the morning and um by this time, like I'd I'd woken up my sister, I'd called my mom, I'd called his mom. Everyone knew that I couldn't get a hold of them. 
And uh, we had everybody out driving, looking for the car, trying to find them. I called the local police and uh, it was four hours later that we had a knock on the door and um, there was about eight people standing outside and I thought they were there to just ask questions and, you know, try to help us find him. But they were there to let me know that he was gone. So... He shot himself about a block and a half away from the house in a field. Mm. And, um, you know, from your story, I mean, it, it sounds like there's, like, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, there was no note. There was nothing. It just kind of, that he was the morning. He just, just he left he a note. It was in his journal, which he knew that I would find. Um, but yeah, I've, I actually found it while we were all looking for him. Mm -hmm. And his sister was at our kitchen table reading it when we had the knock on the door. So it was about a five page note. Okay. Do you mind sharing some of his last thoughts and his, his messages to you and your family? Um, no, I don't mind that at all. Let me, yeah. I'm going to grab it. Okay. All right, I'll just kind of skim through and read, read parts of it. Yeah, it, I'm be interested in knowing, I guess, what, like at the end of it, I mean, I mean, there's so many things that go through my mind when I hear this story. I mean, he's, you know, I imagine he must feel very, just like a burden, you know, who who wouldn't feel like a burden, you know, with, with all of the, the pain he's going through and, you know, obviously being, seeing the toll it's taking on you and, and your family and everything like that. It's so, I mean, that's, yeah, it, it, yeah, that's, I'd be interested to know what, what was it like right at the end and, you know, what, what did he want to pass on to you guys when he and left? Because I, he he would journal every once in a while, but there was one morning, because I did it every morning. I was the first one up and about um, doing my prayers and my meditations and my readings in the morning and journaling. And there was one morning where he came out with his journal and sat and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I remember looking at him, watching him just write, and I I just thought to myself, is he writing a suicide note? I just... I just had a feeling. And so that feeling is what made me go grab his journal when I knew that he was gone. And it was, it is exactly it what he was saying. Okay. So, the, and this just kind of gives you, shows you his heart too. Mm -hmm. I, okay. I am so sorry, honey. I fought as long and as hard as I could. My intrusive thoughts and anxiety just became too much. I am feeling more and more 
mentally unstable by the day, and there was nothing that was helping. I wish I could erase the last nine months so that you could only have fond memories of me. I hope you do not think that I am weak. I am so sorry for all of the pain that I have caused you and for all of the pain that will be left behind. I know that you will be a great mother to Marley, and I know that you will find happiness again soon. I pray that you always remember me, my smile and my laugh, the real me. I know Marley will never understand, but please, if it's the last thing you do for me, do not let her forget me. Let her know how much I loved her. Keep me present in her life as much as possible. You have no idea how much it pains me to write this letter. I am shaking. You have been the best wife and, and friend a man could ever ask for and an even better mother. Please find happiness again soon. I know money does not matter to you, but I want you, know that, I want you to know that there is plenty and that I want you to live life with it. Don't let people convince you that you need to go that you need to save it all for the future. Travel the world, spoil your daughter, spoil yourself. As hard as it is to know and say, you will find someone that will love you and take care of you. Not that you need it, but you have my blessing. I love you so much and I can only hope that you do not forget about me. I am so sorry. My mind just wouldn't stop with the terrible thoughts. I couldn't take it. Now I am rambling. I want you to know how sorry I am. I love you with all of my heart, and I look forward to watching you and Marley change the world from above. I wish I could, I wish to be cremated and have you and Marley decide where and when to spread the ashes. And then he quoted a song, and it says, When you walk into the room, everything changes. That is how I feel about you. You are so special and so destined to change the world. Do it, baby. Jesus has a huge calling on your life, and you are going to make a huge difference in this world. I wish I could have been a part of it all. Please, please, please keep my spirit alive in Marley's life, and hopefully in yours as well. I love you. I can't believe I'm saying this, but goodbye. And I will see you in heaven. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and it really does give you a sense of, of who Max was. I mean, you could hear it. I mean, it just the, the kindness in his words. Um, it's, it's really, really touching. Um, yeah. So, so after this happened, What was what was the next chapter for you? Because I mean, I know you, when we stood before I hit record on this, you said that you were very active in trying to raise awareness about this and holistic healing. You know, tell tell us about how I guess this experience has now opened this new chapter in your life. Yeah, man, I remember about a week after Max died, one of my best friends was over at our house, and we were just reflecting on him as a person and the way that he lived before being sick because he lived such a big life of adventure and travel and trying new things and dancing and I mean, laughing. And she just looked at me and she said, well, I guess we're just going to have to live life to the max now. And I just said, Oh my God, that is perfect. 
I'm like, that is my life motto is to live life to the and that in that moment became my anthem and what I knew I was being called to do um, with this story, with my passions of health and fitness, with my passion of working with women. Um, so in the three years since him dying, I have with one of my best friends in the world who also was really good friends with him, we've started what we call the wild and free community. And it's a community where we work with women um, in retreat settings and in just one day events. And we present to them tools, um, body movement, breath, breath work, um, dancing, exercise, any type of release and ecstatic dance to give them alternative methods to dealing with anxiety and also just a safe space to come and to say, Hey, look, I'm going through this. I, I just want to talk about what I'm going through in a safe setting so that I'm not silenced in shame over feeling these things. And I, um, I love sharing Max's story with other people too, because I feel like this deep pain in my life has propelled me toward this purpose of speaking about what he went through and encouraging as many people as possible to not go the benzo route. Because I think one thing with anxiety and depression is we, there's so much shame around it right? We, there's this notion that there's something wrong with me. I am depressed. There's something wrong with me. I'm feeling anxious when it's like, no, there's not like you're human. You're going through a human experience and there's nothing wrong with you. These things, this anxiety and this depression, they have things to teach you. Like, let's get curious about it and just sit with it and not be ashamed of it. So being able to encourage people to not feel awful about their experience is one way to present an alternative way to view what they're walking through. Yeah. And to not, um, I guess at least these days, you know, mental health has become so medicalized, you know, with, with, you know, what you see online or in the media, you know, it's a serious condition, go and talk to your mental health practitioner. But as soon as you do that, you know, you, you'll end up, you know, chatting with your family doctor or maybe a psychiatrist and, you know, they're not doing the things that your move that your movement is doing where they're saying, Hey, let's try some of these other alternative ways where we can manage your anxiety, non-pharmacologic means, or maybe let's just give it some time. Or how about you just come in here and we'll just, we'll catch up in a month. You tell me how things are going and we'll talk about it. That is not the medical model that's practiced in the U S these days. It's, do you meet criteria for this? Well, I guess we'll just start a medication, and um, um, and I mean, so much of the messaging around psychiatric medications—it really is like they're benign. You know, don't be ashamed to take them. You know, these are you know safe and effective treatments, but the reality is that they're not. You know, they you know they they can be effective. You know, in the short term for some people, but really, you know, especially with Max's story and a lot of the other stories I hear. Sometimes it's like playing Russian roulette because not everyone gets this protracted withdrawal injury. But if you do, I mean, your life is over, you know, or or it's over for 
you know, several years, you know, if you're lucky enough to recover. Um, totally. And it's just, I mean, it's it's such a crazy risk to want to, you know, to, to put people on medications or encourage the use of these medications for anything but the most severe depression and anxiety. It would not make sense to take a risk like that. And I think, I mean, that that's kind of my passion as well now is, is trying to raise awareness about, you know, the problems that can happen. So people think twice and then they're more encouraged to go and talk with people like yourself who are now promoting these alternative modalities because a lot of it, it, it will resolve on its own or you can even learn other ways of coping with it and, and you'll be much safer for it. Right, right. Yeah. And that thing is like the risk is not talked about enough or or the understanding that like there's nothing wrong with you. You know, there's not this imbalance going on in your in your brain. There's a lifetime of trauma. There's a lifetime of experiences that that now they're trying to come up and out of you. And so we don't want to suppress them. We want to allow their release. And so even like what sorts of food are you eating, right? Like what is, how much water are you drinking? Are you, how often are you out in nature? All of these things are just not presented or talked about enough as being a form of, of medicine, you know? And so I'm like, we, we take these women on these retreats and we get them grounding in the earth. We get them just still enough to feel the breeze or wild enough to dance under the moon or, you know, we hold them if they have a moment where they just need to freaking break down and cry. And it's like, there's no shame. Like we are going to feed you yummy food. We are going to play inspiring music. We are going to dance like children. We're going to do all of these things that we as adults forget to do. And, and so I just, it's an honor to be able to live my life in such a way that only witnessing what I witnessed could have taught me. And I think too, like, I, I, I was health conscious, but only in a very vain way prior to losing Max. But now I'm like, so in tune with the food I put in my body, because I know that it's it's important. I'm so in tune with being out in nature and, and how healing that is and with cold plunges and all of these things that I heard other doctors tell him he needed to start doing. I'm like, okay, this is really good. You know, this, these diets are really good. This grounding, this creating with your hands, like all of this is good. And it's almost like God chose me to walk by Max so that I could latch on to all of these things. And teach them to other people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just what I'm going to do. And I'm going to use my whole life to do that. Kelsey, how can people find you uh, if they're, if they're in the area and they're looking for uh, the type of treatment that you described? Yeah. So um, the wild and free community, um, mm-hmm. my Instagram account would be a good, a good way. Or do we, our website too, if you just want to see what it's all about. Um, which is wildandfreecommunity.com. Um, and, th- and that's it. We've got emails on there. So the Instagram account is at the wild and free community. Mm-hmm. And we, me and my girlfriend, Kimmy, host weekly events. We host um, day events that will be like six, seven hours long. We're going to start doing more of those now that summer's here. We have a retreat in Baja, Mexico. Um, our second one there is going to be next month, and and that's a, a sold out experience already. But 
that's, that's it. And because, you know, I'm a woman, that's where my, my heart and my passion is, mm-hmm. um, is with working with women and, um, yeah, that's, that's how you, you can find us and just okay. tune in and, um, reach out. Like if you even need someone to talk to, I've talked to people I don't even know just to give them encouragement, um, or, or share different music or books or documentaries with them to bring them hope because it is what I saturate myself in now. So if there's any way that I can serve, I'm here for it. Well, I think you've already done, I mean, yeah, you're already doing it and, and you're, and by doing this interview as well, it's it, it's so helpful for others um, going through similar things. Um, I wanted to ask, did you have any questions for me me at all? Um, Not any off the top of my head. I think, sure. um, like I said, thank you. It's mm-hmm. it's encouraging to know that you've been on one side of it, and now you're on the other side because you know. And so it just it brings me more hope that like, okay, there's, there's a whole team here rising up from the ashes, right. And shining a light. And I just, I'm grateful. And as crummy as it is that Max's story is one to use um, in this way, I'm grateful that it can be used in a way to help save other people. Fantastic. Great. Well, please, um, Please let me know if I could ever be of uh, service to you and, and what you're doing. Um, I'm very happy to talk about the safest way to, to come off these medications and the safest, safest way to treat the symptoms and, and all of that kind of stuff. And yeah, I'd make myself available to you and, and, and your team in, in, in any way that you'd like. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I will probably even just send people your way that are, are in it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've had a lot of people reach out and say, I'm, I'm in it. I don't know what to do. I've referred a lot of people to Dr. Jennifer, um, mm-hmm. Dr. Jennifer Lee. And so having you as another resource mm-hmm. is, is so special. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to bring this to a close now. Your story was powerful. It brought me to tears several times. I have a four-year-old daughter and I could just see myself walking in your shoes or in Max's shoes the whole way through. And it was, uh, I mean, it, it's a really powerful story and it was beautiful. And I feel like, uh, you know, hearing Max's, his note at the end really, really shares a lot about the kind of guy he was. And he's, he just sounds awesome. Um, so, so I'll let you get back to your Sunday. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Okay. Take care. Bye. Hi, so I wanted to talk about a few things that someone might do if they are feeling suicidal um, while they're undergoing a a drug-induced injury. So the first thing I would recommend is getting in touch with someone that knows how to recognize these conditions and treat them. Um, The last thing that's helped, you know, know, one of the biggest things is getting reassurance that what you're struggling from is real and then seeing someone who could help you with that. The Benzo Information Coalition website has a Find a Doctor uh, page on there where you can look up different doctors by state. Um, You'll see my name on there. We have a clinic that operates out of Utah. We would be glad to help anyone as well. Um, The other thing that I would say is really important is that there are options uh, even for people with severe akathisia. So um, 
you know, personally in my practice, you know, I've, I've helped people by using opiate pain medication, sometimes things such as fentanyl, just to kind of give them respite when they are in severe debilitating symptoms. So there are treatments out there that have, have worked for people who are in that level of pain. So you should always hang on to hope that there may be something out there that could help you. And the last thing I want to say is, you know, this is not just hopeful language here, but this really is my clinical experience and that of a lot of other people I really respect highly who work in the coaching field here, that people tend to heal over time. Even if that healing is very slow and even that healing takes up to a decade, the first half of that is a lot harder than the second half. And and people go on to have fulfilling lives if they are able to get the care that they need to kind of push through. So um, please reach out if you're if you're worried about suicide or anything like that. And obviously, if you feel like you're at the point where you really, there's no options. I mean, going to a psychiatric hospital in that state is a good thing, uh, just because even if the medications don't help, it gives your family a chance to rally supports around you. So I'm going to end on that note. Thanks for watching. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittduringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.